Uh, I want to have you open up your Bibles with me, everyone, if you would, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Take out those message notes. Uh, if this is your first time joining us here at church, uh, we're been, we've been studying in our messages the book of Acts, which is a, a New Testament text that traces the origins of the Christian church. It's kind of the origin story of church. And leading up to chapter 8, we've been tracking the explosive growth of the church Uh, The very first church ever was in the city of Jerusalem, and it just grew like gangbusters. Along the way, though, the church has encountered a ton of opposition. So there's growth, there's opposition, uh, there's been some sermons that we've studied from the Apostle Peter, there's been salvations and healings and water baptisms and discipleship and all these wonderful things, and the gospel is just exploding but for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. We know this from physics. It's also true in spiritual matters. There's some deep frustration, for example, in the Jewish leadership about, about the Christians, about this Christian movement, right? There's, there's jealousy and frustration among the Jewish leaders. There's anxiety from the Roman officials. There's this worsening persecution that's been building for months uh, regarding the apostles. It culminated in the public execution of of the first martyr uh, in Christianity, a guy named Stephen. Uh, Steve Grace, last weekend, if you were with us, he led us through the scriptures. He did a great job wherever you are, Steve. Thank you so much, my friend. Uh, He focused on chapter seven, where Stephen is defending himself against the attacks of the religious leaders, and he's giving the gospel literally while they are killing him, stoning him to death. In that story, we met, uh, briefly, we met a guy who's this kind of rising star in Jewish leadership, a guy named Saul, who's around 33 or 34 years old right here in this uh, section of, of Acts. He's, he's kind of hanging around the side, holding everybody's jackets while they stone Stephen. So that kind of brings us up to where we are today. Let's go ahead and read the first eight verses of chapter eight to begin our study. Uh, if you have a Bible, you follow along, please. It's, I think it's better if, we, if you read it with me. Uh, that way we can really dig in. So here's what it says, verse one. And Saul approved of his execution. This is Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds in Samaria with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, excuse me, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Well, let's, uh, let's pause here. We've gotten whole eight verses. Uh, so that means we need to do some teaching. So here we see Luke, the uh, author of the book of Acts here. He's, he's, he's concluding the death of Stephen by introducing us to two new people. Uh, in the story here. First, we meet the church's earliest, greatest persecutor and the church's greatest evangelist. Those are two, not two different guys. There's the same guy, and that's Saul, uh, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul. So this is your first fill-in if you're a filler-inner. Here you go, guys. Saul is the greatest persecutor and evangelist of the early church. 
He's both of those things eventually, but right now in, in our section in seven and eight and nine, right, he's just Saul the persecutor. He's Saul hell bent on, on tearing down the church. He's going for it, right? He's raging against the Christians. He's doing evil things, the scriptures say, towards the church. Luke tells us that it was Saul who approved of Stephen's execution, meaning that Saul wasn't just there in Jerusalem and just happened to be by the jackets, right? No, he was wanting Stephen to die a heretic's death in his mind. And, 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 and it says, while the Christians are burying him, Saul then goes around, same time, the city of Jerusalem, and he's literally going into people's homes, yanking Christians out of their living rooms and putting them into jail, trying to get them to blaspheme God so he can kill them. So decades later, the apostle Paul, a.k.a. Saul, he's going to recount in his own words just how obsessed he was with persecuting Christians. So I'm going to just give you a little uh, fast forward uh, appetizer from Acts chapter 26. This is Saul. He's about 30 years down the line from Acts chapter eight. Uh, In Acts chapter 26, we're going to get there in about a year. So don't worry. Uh, But here's what he says for now. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So this is, this is a guy here in our, in our progression that's, that is really far from God. But we got to keep in mind a couple of things. We got to keep in mind a couple of things when we read about this unrelenting ruthlessness on the part of Saul. This is just like such a mind trip to me. The first thing is Saul is a couple weeks away from becoming a born again Christian, <laughs> which is like really like what really? Like Jesus is about to reach down through time and space and appear to Saul, right? And turn his world upside down, completely upend him and transform him from the inside out. But looking at him here in chapter eight, right? Nobody in their right mind would, would predict that this guy would soon be bowing his knee to King Jesus and become born again to the living hope in Christ. And this is astounding, right? This turnaround. And this has got some implications to it. This means that the Lord is working secretly right now in, in, in this chapter, right? He's working in Saul's life underneath. We can't see it. And this is God doing this, not just in Saul's life, but God does this all the time, guys. Guys, God's working in those people that you think, you look at them and you're like, man, that person's never going to come to Christ. That person's never going to get saved. Man, that person is literally halfway in hell right now, right? They're never going to bow their knee to him. But when we read this story, there's a big takeaway. And the takeaway is we got to never give up on anybody. Never give up on anyone, no matter how far they seem from the Lord. Maybe you've got a friend who's like a Saul, like a chapter eight Saul, You've got a friend, and he's, maybe he's not a persecutor, but he's just so far, uh, or, or, or maybe they're just, you've got, you've got neighbors, you've got coworkers, 
And you thought, maybe you thought to yourself privately, man, they're never going to get saved. They're never going to get saved. They're never going to become a Christian. I know that I've, I've thought that all the time. I think, I think that like about my relatives, especially I'm like, man, uh, they're maybe hopefully not watching this. Um, (laughs) the point is I understand that mindset, right? Or maybe you've got a prodigal son or a daughter or a prodigal spouse and they're really into a lifestyle that's totally opposite of Jesus. But I just, if that's you guys, keep in mind as we study Acts, if Saul can meet the Lord, then anybody can. And so the action item for us, for our Sauls, is we never give up on them and we keep praying for our Sauls. Do you have a Saul? Do you have a Saul in your life? Someone that you're just like, you are so far from Jesus. It's so annoying. It's so frustrating, right? Keep praying. Keep trusting keep believing, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, because God's working in their life. God is working under the surface. You never know. You never know. You can invite them to church, and you're like, yeah, they're never going to come. They're never going to come. And then they just show up, and you're like, what are you doing here? No, 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 don't say that out loud, okay? All right? God's working. Don't give up on them. The second thing we got to remember, this is also kind of equally like a bit of a a mind-blown moment, is that, okay, Luke is writing this, right? Luke is Dr. Luke. Uh, We talked about Dr. Luke. He's the most prolific writer in the New Testament. He's written more New Testament words than any other person. Uh, And here we see, uh, he's introducing us to Paul. But later in the the book of Acts, we're going to learn that Luke and Paul become really good friends. They become really good friends. They're close with each other. They're like ministry partners. Luke accompanies Paul. Paul does these huge missionary journeys. His second and third missionary journey, Luke is with Paul. So in, a, in some amount of chapters, the, the narrative turns to we and us because Luke is with. And it's really fascinating. Um, there's, there's like this part where Paul becomes uh, in prison for two years and Luke is with him the whole time. He's not in prison, but he's like, his buddy on the outside and he's ministering to him and, and feeding him and, and giving him clothing and things. And, and, and this is such an unlikely pairing because Paul is this strict Jewish man who kept kosher and was like super law guy, law dog, right? And, and when you're a circumcised Jewish law dog, you're not allowed to hang out with uncircumcised Gentiles, which is what Luke was. And yet they become the best of friends in Christ. Jesus brings these guys together in a way that never naturally would have happened, naturally speaking. And this is a takeaway for you and me. And that's be open to friendships with your Paul's. Okay, be open to the kind of friendships with, with your Pauls. Like that, and what that means is, is people that you would never naturally become friends with, but because you're both Christians and you're in Christ and the Lord has done similar things to save and transform and to be uh, Lord and Savior, then, then there could be a possible ministry or partnership. So, so in other words, don't just stay friends, guys, as a believer with people that are just like you, that have the same personality or the same hobbies or the same backgrounds or root for the same teams. So that means you can be friends with me because I guarantee you we don't root for the same college team. All right. If we just stick to people that are like us, that's what people do in culture. That's what people do. No, as believers, we limit the Lord's blessing in our lives. If we only kind of open our lives up to those exactly like us. And, and, and here's the thing. When we meet Jesus, he opens our worlds up to all kinds of people and friendships and partnerships that we would never have we would never consider other than our, our common faith, our common Christian faith. So, so this is so 
this is like, like where, the, where the Bible just hits real life. Like remember Luke and Paul when the Lord brings across your path someone that you're like, eh, I don't know. I don't know about that guy. I don't know about that guy. I don't know about him. I don't know. I don't know. But, but maybe the Lord has something there. Jump into a community group or a Bible study this fall. Uh, the community life here at Redeemers is very robust. We've got a lot of different groups and Bible studies. And in those environments, you can really meet folks that you normally wouldn't meet. And then friendships in Christ can form that would never be possible outside of, like I said, your common faith in Jesus. What do you think about that? You think that's kind of a cool thing? You think that's kind of a cool? By your total silence, I'm thinking that's an agreement. <laughs> I'm just going to fill it in for you. All right, let's look at another leader. So we, we're going to learn more about Paul a lot because uh, in a few chapters, Acts basically becomes Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Uh, and, and so we're going to spend a lot of time with him. So we just get a little bit of a, a taste uh, right now. So more on Paul, but let's look at another leader. Look at verses one and four. I kind of uh, mashed them together for you here on the screen. There arose that great day, Uh, that day, rather, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, meaning the Christians, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Kind of note that. Now, those who were scattered went about, what were they doing? Preaching the word. So they were scattered and they weren't like so scared that they shut up. They were like, the Christians were scattered because of the Stephen persecution wave that hit Jerusalem, but they shared their faith. They shared the gospel as they went, as they landed in new towns and new places. And this is really interesting to me um, because up until that point, the gospel was only in Jerusalem. All right. This is partly why the Jerusalem church got to be so big. This was a mega church. We think the church in Jerusalem, the first church, the only church in Christianity at this time was around 10 or 12 or 15,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's like uncomfortable amount of people when you come to church. Like you're like, wow, that's a lot of people. Isn't that a lot of people? That's like most of the town of Roseburg at this point. I guess Roseburg proper. Uh, So the message of Christ had been not been rather exported to any other geographical area. So there was a super concentration of ministry and miracles and sermons and discipleship and preaching. All 12 of the apostles were in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and yet here, um, here we see this scattering, but not the apostles, the people scattered. Now, okay, so there's a lot on this, but I, I mean, this was a successful church, right? So I don't blame anybody for staying put when, when there's ministry happening and God's moving and you've got miracles. And, and there was others that needed to be saved in Jerusalem. Not everybody was a Christian. But then again, this wasn't necessarily in alignment fully with the program that Jesus had commanded them. Not entirely. Now, Jesus had, what do I mean? Jesus had commanded the Christians Uh, before he was ascended into heaven, he commanded the squad, the 12, to go. He did this several times. Here's one of those times from the gospel of Mark. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So go. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus said go. Jesus said go. Go. You got to go. Not stay, not stay put. He said, go. You got to get, 
Don't you say that in redneck? Get. You got to get. All right? That's what that means. The message of Christ is a worldwide gospel. All nations, all people, all races, all ethnicities, all languages are invited and included in the kingdom of God. It's not just a Jewish religion. It's not just a Western religion. It's not just a white person's religion. No, not at all. From the beginning, Christianity was inclusive of every single person and group and neighborhood and, 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 and color of skin, right? This is Christianity. Christianity is not a Western faith. If anybody tells you that, just ignore them and love them and correct them, however you would, in the moment if it's possible. And so the Lord would say this over and over and over again. He would repeat this go command. And you can see some of the scriptural references on your notes. I put them on there. One of those is back at the beginning of the book of Acts, which we studied, Jesus said explicitly that they were to go. So there's the go thing. But then Jesus names some specific places in verse eight of chapter one. Here it is. You will be my witnesses. And then the places are Jerusalem and are all Judea and Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth. He just like, okay, it's everywhere. But Jerusalem notice here is just the beginning of the process. And Judea was really just, Judea are the hills around Jerusalem and the area around Jerusalem. And then Samaria, which is this non-Jewish area in central Israel and then beyond. But the problem here is, if there is a problem, is that they hadn't done any of that other stuff yet. They hadn't done the going part yet. They had just done Jerusalem and they stayed put. And there's a lot of discussion about why this in the commentaries, why the apostles hadn't gone yet. Uh, maybe things were pretty comfortable where they were, uh, or maybe they, maybe they just hadn't gotten to it yet. Whatever the reason is, the persecution comes and the scattering of the Christians happens as a result of the persecution. I don't think God wanted the persecution or willed the persecution, but God used the persecution And God used the persecution because as the Christians ran away and they escaped, where did they go? Luke says they went to Judea and Samaria. So they went to the next two places on Jesus' list. And otherwise, they hadn't gotten there yet. And they disperse. And when they disperse, wherever they land, they share the gospel. Okay, so I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again because it's in the text and because, uh, I don't know, I, you're maybe like me, I just need things to be repeated a lot, just to repeat it a lot, repeat it a lot, repeat it a lot in order for it to land. But here it is again, though. Opposition to the gospel didn't stop the gospel. It expanded the gospel. Opposition to the gospel didn't stop the gospel or thwart the gospel or even slow the gospel down. It, ex- it, it did the opposite. It expanded the gospel. It sped up the gospel. And it created more fruitfulness And this is what happens in the book of Acts time and time again. It's a unique little, um, not little, it's a unique, powerful uh, phenomenon uh, in the scriptures, in the Bible. And this has also repeated itself in Christian history many, many times since. This is is not just a biblical phenomenon. This is a Christian phenomenon. And there's so many examples of this. I'll give you one. We talked about the persecuted church. Here's another one. Uh, in the mid-1970s, many of you are familiar with Cambodia and the, the, the killing fields of the dictator Pol Pot. Uh, this, the, the Khmer Rouge communist regime took over that country in the mid-1970s. And this man and his ideological partners uh, murdered two million-plus Cambodians. Amongst those that he killed were all the Christians of that country. 
I'm sorry, I just, I can't, I just keep getting, uh, the Swiss male in me says, you should not cry, Billy. Uh, but I can't, this tears my heart out. Um, in 1981, the people who study these things tell us there was only three Christian pastors left in Cambodia. Three. In 1981. And, and yet, opposition to the gospel does not stop the gospel. It expands the gospel. And now we see, 43 years later, uh, that Cambodia has experienced the most evangelical church growth of any Southeast Asian nation. Currently, we're seeing 3% of the entire 16 million population turning to Jesus, which, is, which is equates to over a half a million Christians and a half a million Christians in churches that are reaching their neighbors. And this is astounding, astounding growth from where it was just 42 years ago. So the gospel expands, guys, amidst persecution. And in our text here, we see the Christians scattering and we see the gospel going forward. Now, I said this, Luke says that the apostles didn't scatter. They stayed in Jerusalem. And we're not really sure why this is. Luke doesn't tell us why they stayed or what they did. Presumably, they kept ministering to the city, of course. But this detail, I think, is really important, even though we, we have some questions like, you know, Luke, if Luke were here right now, we'd ask him, like, dude, what could you tell us? Could you fill this in, right? Um, but this detail is important because I think this is the point that Luke is making, and it's really important. It's this. The first time the gospel spreads beyond Jerusalem, it was through the ministry of ordinary people and not the apostles, it was through the ministry of the Christians that were just everyday Christians, ordinary Christians, and it wasn't through the apostles or the church leaders. And this is a pattern then that is set, and it's so critical in the New Testament that we pull this out, because how will the Great Commission, how will the whole world be reached for Jesus? It's through this. It's going to be completed. The Great Commission will be completed because we all have a part to play. Ordinary Christians, not super Christians, will reach the world for Christ. And the reason that's the case is because every single believer is empowered to, to do the work of the ministry by the Holy Spirit. So if you are a Christian and you have your faith in Christ and you have been born again, then you have the Holy Spirit inside of you working in you. And you also have a calling and a ministry and, and, a, and a destiny towards the great commission that the Lord is, is calling each and every one of us, right, to, 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 to communicate the gospel through words and through our lives. And so the Lord will scatter us and spread us around. Sometimes it's by choice and sometimes it's not by choice. But everywhere the empowered believers go, we share our faith in Jesus with our friends, neighbors, and family. And it's the job of the apostles and the church leaders in the Bible to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And it's then the role of the ordinary believer, the Christians, to communicate the gospel with words and living gospel lives. So God uses, guys, the whole church to show and share the grace of Christ to, to, to those around us. This is what we do. This is what we do. We don't just have a privatized faith. You know, culture says, keep your faith private. Do you, do you know this message? Keep your faith to yourself. Keep your politics to yourself. Keep your faith to yourself. And, and yet, the people that say that don't do that. They push that stuff on us all the time, don't they? That's not in my notes. Um, <laughs> it just dawned on me. Uh, but this is a pattern that we see in the book of Acts, and we say this phrase around redeemers, we say it takes the whole church to reach the whole world. 
It takes the whole church to reach a whole city. It takes every Christian's living in that neighborhood to reach that neighborhood. It takes your whole group, your whole small group, your whole community group, your whole Bible study to reach everybody that God has for you to reach. It's not just the, the, the job of, of me and the staff and the elders. No, it's, it's the job of all of us, right, to see the Great Commission completed. And so, so we see this here. This is so important. And we're going to hammer on this all the time because it's in the text. And, and not just hammer in a bad way, but this is good to bring this forward for us to grab onto. Uh, amen, Billy. Good job. Okay, so... <laughs> My pappy said, if no one encourages you, then encourage yourself. Uh, so, the Luke, so Luke then tells us the name of one of these scattered saints. His name is Philip. And so Philip is, this is your next villain. He's the first known missionary to carry the gospel outside of Jerusalem. So really the first missionary in the Bible is this guy named Philip. Now there was many missionaries. It wasn't just Philip, uh, as it turned out, because Christians were escaping from Jerusalem. But this is the first one that we know the name of. And so he's kind of the, the representative, the rep of the first missionary. Now, missionaries are people, Christians, who, who go to other cultures and carry the gospel with them. And you don't even have to have the title to be a missionary, like your job or whatever. It's, it can just be wherever the gospel isn't, we are on a mission from God. We are commissioned by the Lord to carry the gospel to that place. So there's another first in Christianity. Philip is the first cross-cultural missionary named of the Christian faith. Now, just a quick note so that we're not confused. There's another Philip in the New Testament, and that Philip is, is an apostle. He is one of the 12. But our Philip here in eight is not one of the 12. He's rather, he's one of the seven. Now, uh, the Magnificent Seven, no. Um, <laughs> This is the guys that were named in Acts chapter 6. Remember, we studied this a few weeks ago. A.J. Swoboda brought the sermon there. There were seven men chosen in Jerusalem to be in charge of food distribution to the Christian widows. Stephen, the martyr, was one of those seven. And now we see another one, Philip. So these were extraordinary servants who did, who did amazing miracles, right, in addition to waiting tables, in addition to just serving, basically strapping on the towel and washing feet. So Philip is one of the seven. Now he escapes to Samaria and Luke says he proclaimed the gospel to the Samaritans and a lot of them came to know Jesus. They listened intently and it was a very fruitful ministry. The thing with Samaria that was the challenge for the Jerusalem Christians who were all Jewish was Samaria was the very last place on planet Earth that a Jew wanted to be. And so Philip lands in Samaria, the last place. He was Jewish. Philip was Jewish. The last place, naturally speaking, anybody wanted to be. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. I want you to think about like groups, racial groups that hate each other naturally. And there's all kinds of ways that happens, right? Think of two groups that just, on the surface, they're supposed to hate each other, they hate each other. This is one of those, and in the Bible, this is maybe the top. Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. When Jesus said his list, I want you to go to Jerusalem and, everybody, and preach the gospel, everybody's like, yes, of course. And then he says, Judea. And then they were like, of course, yes, let's reach our fellow Jews. And then he says, Samaria. And then the room got real quiet. 
And there was some like, some looks, some like, uh, he didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. We heard him wrong. He, we heard him wrong. He said, uh, he said some other nation, um, right? That's, that's the cringe factor. So let's talk about Samaria. Samaria is a region in Israel that's sandwiched between Judea, the Judean region, and the Galilean region. So the lake, Galilee, Sea of Galilee, it's actually a lake, is up in the northern part of Israel. And Judea with Jerusalem is like in the center. And in between is Samaria. And Jews, when they were traveling between Galilee and Jerusalem areas, they would literally walk around Samaria. They would not go through it because to go through it meant that you had to interact with the Samaritans and they didn't want to do it. So they would add miles and miles and dangerous journeys to, to just avoid this, this place, right? The animosity between these two groups was, was old. It, it was centuries old. And it all stemmed back to the time of the wars with the Assyrian Empire. So let's now do a little bit of Bible history. In 722 BC, you may recall this, the Assyrian Empire swept into northern Israel from Iraq and wiped them out. They lost 10 tribes of Israel. Wiped out all of northern Israel and just killed them, exported them, They were were no more. It was the policy of the Assyrians to basically erase the kingdoms that they conquered through outright killing. The Assyrians were were terrorists. They were really terrible, terrible, terrible. They had just gruesome people in war. And they killed and they deported. And then whoever was left, they would ship in Assyrians and then they would co-marry and co-mingle and intermingle with the people, ostensibly creating a new ethnicity. So the Jews in the South were left alone and they were all like sort of guarded from the Assyrian attack. But the Jews in the North were, 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 were deported and then their folks intermingled with the Assyrians that moved in. So the Jews in the South looked at this little new group with hatred because they weren't pure Jewish blood. They were like muggles. They were like Harry Potter and the half-blood prince, okay? Um, no, some you didn't get that. All right. They, this is nerd talk. So they were, there was immediate rejection and hatred and animosity. Samaritans were the worst because they were polluting the Jewish race. So when Jesus said, take the gospel to Samaria, the Jewish Christians struggled. So, so you actually see this animosity in the gospels in, in Luke. When Jesus was in his public ministry in Luke 9, Jesus is in Galilee and he's going to Jerusalem. And instead of going around Samaria, he, he shockingly travels through Samaria. And while they're there, they're walking through, the Samaritans don't like them. The Samaritans, it says, Luke says, they don't welcome Jesus And that really torqued off the apostles, the the disciples. So John and uh, James turn to Jesus and say, Lord, can you just pray down fire and burn all these Samaritans up? They're like, Lord, just torch them. Just barbecue these losers. We don't want them anymore. That's essentially what they were saying. And that's how much hatred they had. And Jesus looks at the guys and he basically says, shut up. Shut up in Jesus' name, right? He rebukes them, it says. (laughs) 
and, and he moves on. The Samaritans weren't innocent. History tells us they made their own fake temple and they said, hey, our fake temple is the real temple in Jerusalem. Don't go to their temple in Jerusalem. It's jacked up. They had their own fake Torah. They, they kind of copied the Torah and they changed it around and made their own Samaritan Torah. They would regularly send war parties to Jerusalem and release pigs into the temple courts. They would throw dead bodies and bones on the priests to make them impure. And so the Jews got upset eventually and they went up to Samaria and destroyed their fake temple. It was awful, right? And it was going on for 600 years. So now we see, fast forward, Acts chapter eight, a full-blooded Jewish man filled with the gospel of Jesus goes right into the heart of Samaria, the capital city also called Samaria, and begins ministering the gospel in grace and power. Healings and exorcisms take place. The Samaritans now welcome Philip And they listen intently, large numbers accept Christ. And all of this is happening, and it shouldn't be happening by natural causes, right? This is absolutely, totally, astoundingly like, what is going on moment. And what is going on is the gospel is having its effect, not only on individuals, but on people groups now. There is a unity that is created between people and people groups that is literally impossible to have happen without Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus overcomes years of hurt and animosity and racism and injustice like no other strategy or program can. Do you believe this? You see, guys, we can pass laws to legislate fairness between ethnicities, and we can help see more fairness and equal treatment happen governmentally. But what we cannot do with these laws is make races and cultures love each other and truly embrace one another. So what politics and government is unable to do, the gospel can, and that is to bring true racial reconciliation between groups that don't trust each other and don't like each other. In Jesus, in Jesus, we all, we all, all of us, no matter where we come from or what the color of our skin is, we all recognize that the true problem between us is the problem of sin. We all have one problem. Every single human being has one problem, sin. Selfishness, arrogance, self-sufficiency, greed, all these things, right? And that one problem of sin can only be solved by one savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what unifies us. This is what unifies us more than anything else. There's there's a power that comes when I look another person in the eye and they come from a different part of perspective and just maybe, maybe other side of the train track, whatever. They come from a completely different planet, so to speak. But because... We have the same problem and the same savior. There's unity that is, is, is transcendent over any other issue. This unites us more than anything else. And this is, there's a lot to say on this. We're going to say more on this topic. And I will say that it's not just racial. It's not just racial. It's, um, we're pretty, can I just say this? We're pretty monolithic racially in our county, uh, are we not? 
there's, you know, there's a lot of people that have the same color as my skin that live here. Not all, but mostly. And, and so some of this we can say is more theoretical to us, but you know where we do have a lot of divide is politically. And can I say something that may torque everybody in the room off, which is my goal? And that is <laughs> Jesus, Jesus can, can, can bring us all together. He can make us like those we don't, that don't vote like us. And share, because we share a common faith in Jesus. And that is, that is, that is one of the, the goals and dreams and passions of our church. Okay, uh, before I say anything else and get into trouble, let me do my last little point here, which is there's one thing that's just so beautiful here. It's the very last verse, verse eight. So there was much joy in that city. Joy is here in Samaria. True revival brings joy to the people of that place. The people of Samaria wanted the preachers from Jerusalem to be there. And there was joy. Yes, there was opposition, of course, but there's joy. There's something we, ha- we can't forget, guys. So we have to ask ourselves, does our ministry here at Redeemers bring joy to those around us as we minister and serve them? Does it bring joy? Or do we upset people? Are we stirring the pot? And so we try to do ministry as best we can to serve. We still stay focused on the gospel. We're going to preach the gospel. And that can bring some tension. But other than that, we're trying to serve people in such a way that they want us around. They want us to be here. If there were a church in town that's doing ministry in such a way that everybody's looking at them going like, we wish you weren't here, then I don't think that's in alignment with the scriptures. And so that's our, our, we're striving to, to be biblical. Some of you are smiling. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? If you don't know what I mean, then come ask somebody that's smiling and they'll tell you. And we, will, we, we, are, we are patterning us, ourselves after the book of Acts, which is a beautiful thing. <laughs>